Today we're going to be hearing about sharing your faith with others. And I know for a lot of us, maybe that idea sounds intimidating to you. Maybe that idea freaks you out, quite frankly. And many of us have lived in the tensions, like the three stories we're about to hear, tensions when it comes to how and when to share your faith. And so I'm going to invite my friends to come forward, and we're going to share three sort of scenarios with you. Maybe you relate to them as we start our service today. Fred is a businessman who works in a large corporation, and he feels a lot of loyalty for that company because that company has promoted him several times and provided very well for his family and for him. He's a leader now in the company. And he's expected to exemplify and promote the values and the policies of that company. But one day, a coworker shared with him that a family member had died very suddenly. And he felt prompted by the Lord to offer to pray for that coworker, even though it's against the policies of his company. So how does Fred step into these God-ordained moments while still honoring the policies of the company that he's working for? Are there some options, or does he just have to obey God rather than man? Olivia has, been, has had a strong inner relationship with Jesus for a long time. She loves to worship and experiences God regularly. She has a friend who's recently been dabbling in some New Age stuff. Horoscopes, chakras, even Buddhism. She sees an opportunity to talk about Jesus, but is also terrified of controversy. She knows the Bible makes some pretty serious truth claims about Jesus and other religions. Even she has wondered at times if there's more than one way into heaven other than just Jesus. She really doesn't want to argue or debate with her friend, and she hates offending people. Olivia is really worried that once she brings up God, She'll get asked all sorts of questions about why she's a Christian, even when she has gay friends who feel under attack by the church. She's afraid that she'll be lumped in with those Christians who are deemed closed-minded and always have to be right. What if she loses her friend by sharing her love and faith in Jesus? Sam has a strong sense of theology and he knows the Bible pretty well. He considers himself to be an intellectual and really honors science. The other day, though, he was gaming with some of his friends online, and they happened to bring up an, an online thread on Reddit, which seemed to thoroughly debunk Christianity. In fact, it seemed like everyone agreed online that religion actually did more harm than good in this world. As he was hearing his friends talk about this, if he's honest, Sam, some of the own doubts he had in his own mind that he hadn't been able to share with anyone were brought up to the surface again. I mean, after all, he, there's times in church where he cringes whenever the pastor talks about demons or goes on an angry rant, and he, he struggles with that. But there he was. He, he felt like he should have said something. After all, he, he believes in Jesus Christ. He believes in the resurrection, but he knew that his friends would dogpile him if he, if he did. 
the question arises in Sam's mind, can he really change their thinking through his conversation with them? The last thing he wants is to be labeled as, a, as an anti-science dummy who still believes in fairy tales. After all, is it even worth bringing up God if they've clearly already heard about Jesus and decided they don't want him? Sam, like Fred and like Olivia, is dealing with the tension of sharing his faith with the people around him even when it seems like God has given them an opportunity. Look around you. There's so much work to do. This world is in no condition for us to simply sit back and watch. There is a tangible, desperate need for Jesus, a glimpse of hope in the midst of hopelessness. Jesus experienced this. He saw it firsthand. The need broke his heart and filled him with compassion. He turned to his disciples and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This alone should stir our hearts. It's a calling, a calling to make a difference, to share the truth of the gospel, to be a light in the darkness, to be the church. It's time for us to look beyond ourselves, to turn our focus to the field, to answer the call and passionately share the love of Jesus. This is our mandate. This is our mission. Are you ready to do the work? Well, good morning, Radio Church. Anybody glad to be here today? Can I hear from you today? Ooh, amen. Burr, uh, you know, it is cold out there. And uh, so I just want to say welcome. Thanks for coming out. And uh, it's a nice, warm place. Thank you to all those who are watching at home. And a, a particular uh, greeting to those who may be watching us from a palm tree. We don't like you, <laughs> but we love you and miss you uh, on that. So, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for making it out uh, today. The roads were a little messy and all that, and I'm glad you're here. We've been walking through our series, Exploring the Core Values of Radiant Church, and uh, this will be the final one in that series. Where we're going to talk about multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches so I'm looking forward to jumping in. I hope you are too. What does it mean for us to discover who is our one? Uh, earlier in the week, Pastor Ben sent me a couple of graphs. We do that with each other, and you might be like, why? And I think the answer is clear. Um, neither of us has a life, and, uh, and that's why we do that. We send out uh, nice little charts to each other, and uh, we think it's fun. And so one of the charts he sent out to me, though, I said, boy, that is actually interesting for this week's sermon, because what it said is it was uh, measuring uh, the barriers for making disciples, and uh, what are some of those things that keep us from fully stepping into making disciples and multiplying, and I thought the answers were pretty interesting. The first one is, uh, I don't think I'm qualified or equipped. That's a, a about 37% of the people. 
The next one is no one suggested it or asked me. The third one is just haven't thought about it. Uh, the next one is had a bad experience in the past, and that can happen. And then the other one is other. And I'm like, what is other? You didn't shave your legs or put deodorant on? What is it on that? Uh, you know, so, but I did notice, I'm like, you know what? On this list, I can knock two of these out pretty quickly. I mean, no problem. So hang tight. Here we go. The first one is this. No one has asked or suggested it. So here we go. Hi. I'm Pastor Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am asking and suggesting to you that you actually go make disciples. Woo! Yeah. Look at that. That was an easy one right there. Now, what was the other one I noticed? Well, I just haven't thought about it. Cool. For the next 20 minutes, we're going to be talking about it. So you're going to think about it. So welcome. Congratulations. We just, we just like knocked 46% of the problem right out, right there on that. You have now been informed to go make disciples, and we're going to sit here and we're going to think about it for a minute. As Pastor Matty at Pleasant Hill would say, that's easy peasy. We took care of it. But it's not that easy, is it? I mean, all kidding aside, making disciples is hard. It's not easy. And that's more and more what we want to talk about as we go forward. And that's what multiplication is all about. It's about making disciples. But when we're talking about making disciples, we're talking about something called the Great Commission. And for some of you, you've heard of that. But for many of you, you haven't. Kind of a churchy word. But at the core of it is this idea of the Great Commission. And the second graph I noticed that Ben sent me was this one. It says... uh, Churchgoers, uh, have you heard of the Great Commission? And 51% of the people who attend church say, no, I've never, ever heard of the Great Commission. I'm just curious, who's heard of the Great Commission out there? A bunch of you have. Okay, good. That's because, you know, Radiant's way smarter than most other people um, on that. So, but, you know, 51% say no. Uh, 6% said they're not sure. Um, And then a big chunk of them say yes, but I can't recall the exact meaning on this. And so what we see is nearly about 80% of the people that they polled say, no, I don't necessarily know what the Great Commission is. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today because I want you to know what the Great Commission is. It's at the core of everything we do at Radiant Church, and it's important in our lives. We've talked about these verses before, and so it's no surprise that the Great Commission comes from Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, what's going on is Jesus is about to go back into heaven to be with his father. Now, he's leaving some final instructions to his disciples before he's to go, which kind of, you know, makes us need to ask the questions like, if Jesus was about to go back to his father and you knew that, wouldn't you want to hear what he said? The final instructions seems like those would be important. I would be paying attention. And that's what this is. When we read this verse, these are Jesus' final instructions as he's about to go to his father. We should pay really close attention. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do, if I could, is when you came in, you got a worship guide. At least you think you did. And if not, you can raise your hand and Kendra will get you one here as well. And on the back of those are some teaching notes. We do this often. And there's fill-ins, and we're going to walk through those fill-ins, and I'm going to ask you to maybe do it with us uh, as we journey through that. Why? Because I find that when I write something down, I tend to memorize it more. The second reason, it is my hope that in the coming week, you go back with these notes, you sit down, and you prayerfully think through, what is it God's trying to tell me? Reflect upon what we talk about today and ask God to reveal to you his purposes in your life. So follow along, if you could. I even put Matthew 28, 19, and 20 on there so that you can reflect on it this week. The 
first obvious thing we see from these verses is that we are called to go, which is one of our core values, isn't it? Go. We are the sent people of God. The idea of it is, is we exist to get out of here into there. In other words, get out of this room and get beyond the walls and go into our community to be a light in our community. We're called to go be a blessing to our community and the people around us. So core to what we believe and core you can see the Great Commission is this idea that we are to go. We are the sent people of God. The second thing we see is that we're called to make disciples. And that means we need to be intentionally pouring into other people to help them take their next steps in their journey with Christ. And we've talked about this before. A disciple is a person who does the things Jesus says, um, or does the things Jesus does, says the things Jesus says, with the intent of becoming who or what Jesus is. A disciple is a person becoming more like Jesus Christ. And the mandate in the Great Commission is that we're called to go make disciples. That's our priority. Get out of these walls, get out of your holy huddle, and get out there and go make disciples. And as we make disciples, what are we called to do next? Well, we're called to baptize them. Now, for a lot of people, and I've talked to a couple this week, you know, they'll say, well, yeah, I, I got baptized as a, a kid or as a baby, and those are great, and they're very, very important. But, you know, for me, I kind of relegate that into the child dedication category in many ways because baptism truly at its heart is an adult decision where you say that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my King. It is, a, it is a decision to say, I have made this inward decision, and this is an outward sign of that decision. When we get baptized, we are putting on display before everybody that our allegiance is with Jesus Christ. And for many of the early believers, when they said, Jesus is my king, they were also conversely saying, Caesar was not. And when they did that, they lost their lives. So baptism is no light thing. It is an outward sign of an inward decision that Jesus Christ is both my Savior and my King. And when we declare Jesus is our King, we get to the next part of the Great Commission there. Jesus told us to teach them to obey. Now, obedience isn't a word most of us gravitate towards. It's part of our human condition to wake up in the morning and go, I think I'll just do my own thing my own way. I'll be the captain of my own ship. That is, after all, the sin in the garden, isn't it? I know what to do with this piece of fruit better than God does. And, and, and so we don't naturally gravitate towards obedience, and yet here we are called to help make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. And the reason why is if you do absolutely declare that Jesus Christ is your king, then that means Jesus is calling the shots in your life. That means that we surrender our will and our way to him, we bow down to him and worship, we obey him. Teach them to obey. That's the great commission. And at its core, we have this idea that we're called to go, and then we're called to live as Jesus lives. That's what a disciple does. And we love as Jesus loves. That's what it means to be the sent people of God. And then the result of that is to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. We make more disciples. And so you can see for our core values, which is go, live, love, and multiply, Matthew 28 and the Great, Commis Great Commission is at the center of that entire message. 
And so if you came in today and you didn't know, you, you were like that graph and you say, you know, I don't know what the Great Commission is or I'm not sure. I'm hoping today that you leave and say, I absolutely understand what the Great Commission is. At its core, we go make disciples. That's what we do. And that's my challenge to you is for us to live lives where we are taking steps toward helping to make disciples. And we're going to talk about that more and more in the next few months because this is key to who we are and where we're going as a church. And there's three different kinds of people I, I want to talk about real quick. One in particular I want to hone in on. But when we say that we want to make disciples or we want to be intentional about discipleship and multiplying, who am I talking about? Well, there's three kind of people that I want you to think about. And the first one is this. Ask yourself, who do I need to invite? Who do I need to invite to church? Who do I need to invite to small group? Who do I need to invite to this event? Who is it I need to invite? The second one is, who am I discipling? Who am I discipling in life? In other words, how am I helping somebody take those next steps to become more and more like Jesus Christ? And then the third one we have talked about in the past, but we haven't really talked about lately, and we're going to be talking about it a lot the next few months because it's time for us to return a focus to this. And that question is this, who's your one? Who's your one? I want to talk about today. You may not be familiar with that. I'm talking about that one person you're investing in that you've taken time to, to do life with, to walk alongside. Who's that one person that you're hoping to introduce to Jesus and help them become more like him? But there's some things I want to talk about if we're going to get serious about having ones and how to engage those relationships. So let's dive into that. And some of these things I think are going to surprise you. When I'm talking about who's your one, first off, there's three criteria at Radiant Church when we're asking who's your one. The first one is this. This person does not have a relationship with Jesus. This is why, notice I asked two different questions. I said, who are you discipling? And then I asked, who's your one? Those are two completely separate conversations. See, who you're discipling is somebody who has already made a decision for Jesus, and they need to grow in that relationship. They need to take those next steps. They need to live life in community and have someone walk alongside them. We're all called to help disciple people as well. But when I say who's your one, I'm not talking about or asking who are you discipling. When I say who's your one, this is somebody who is far from Christ, who doesn't know Jesus. There's the distinction. The second is this. They live local to you. And I get it. I have friends that I've been investing in for years that I want to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I will continue having that relationship with them. But they are not my one. At Radiant Church, when we ask who your one is, we're talking about who is somebody you do life with. Is it somebody at work? Is it somebody in your neighborhood? Someone in your sphere of influence. Who is your one locally? The third thing is this, you agree to rearrange your life to do life with them. In other words, this special unique person that God puts on your heart, this one is somebody you say, I'm going to take time and attention and resources, 
I'm going to invest in this person. And, 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 and it's a serious thing. We say, this person's my one. That means that, you know what? They call, we pick up the phone. They text, we answer it. They want to do coffee, we go to coffee. Whatever it looks like, it can look like a million different things. But the answer is, I have decided this person gets my time and attention. And, and it's not being rude. Did you know I can't give every single person time and attention equally? And we're just saying this particular person is going to be elevated above some of the others. They're going to be a special person in our life. Now, let's keep some things in mind as you step into this idea of finding a one. And the first one is going to surprise you like crazy. It did at Pleasant Hill, and it's interesting. The goal is not to bring them to Christ. I didn't ask, who are you evangelizing? I asked, who's your one? And I'll get to this before you go, boy, I'm not sure what I think about that. Hang with me for just a second, okay? The goal with your one is not to bring them to Christ. The goal is this. The goal is a relationship, first and foremost. The reason why is this. People don't want to feel like a project. They don't need you to sell them Jesus. And here's the problem we go into a relationship and the only goal is to get them to Christ. There's nothing wrong with that goal. That can be it. But if the primary goal isn't relationship, then it's a transactional relationship. And I've watched this enough for many years. If the only goal is to get them to Jesus, the thing is we invest some time into them, we get them to say a prayer, and then we leave them and go to the next one, don't we? We didn't invest in a relationship. We just saw them as a means to an end. You know what I mean? Having a one is different. Having a one says, I'm just going to do life alongside this person. We're going to become friends. We're going to get to know each other. We're going to share our life stories and learn more about each other. And we're just going to walk alongside each other for a while. But my dear friends, nobody wants to feel like they are your project. They don't. That's why I warn people, and there's discussions on this either way, but here's just where I stand on it. I would highly caution you about telling somebody who you've decided and the Lord's put on your heart to be their one that they are your one. I would caution that, at least at first. Because nobody wants to feel like they're in some kind of transactional relationship where you're trying to sell them Jesus. People need friends. And there's entirely too many Christians that hang out in the Christian bubble and don't have any lost friends. And it's through building that relationship and that friendship, guys, that they will see there is something different about you. There's something unique about you. How many of you would say, you know what? Yeah, I work out in the marketplace and my coworkers know there's something different about me, that I'm, I love Jesus. Would anyone say that? They, they, they know. I know one guy told me a story not long ago. He's like, yeah, finally a guy walked up to me and he's like, dude, there's just something different about you. You don't get upset about the things people do and you don't cuss like a sailor. You know why? Boom, door open. You'll get your opportunities by the way you live. I'm 
embarrass my wife, but I remember, sorry, this wasn't in the sermon. But I just remember one day, she works for a, a company like most of you, a large corporation. You don't get on there and go, hi, you need Jesus? You, know, you don't do that today, right? You know? I mean, so she works for a company like most of you. But, but one day, one of the people at work called her and says, I know you're a Christian, and I just got diagnosed with cancer. Would you pray for me? They'll know. Invest in the relationship. And when you do that, here's something incredibly magical that happens. This is so amazing. Having a one grows me. See, when you invest in the relationship and you pour into them and you have, and, and you have that time with them, you'll be praying for them. You'll be answering their questions. Even sometimes when the question's like this and you don't know the answer and you're like, I don't know, but let's find out together. And through that process, you remain connected to the vine. And that relationship with them will grow you as you walk alongside. And so if you're sitting there going, you know what, there's times I feel like I'm, I'm stagnant in my faith or I've plateaued or I'm not growing. Maybe the answer for you is to go find your one. Maybe that is your next step. Now, there are four phases a lot of people walk through with their one. And um, not everybody gets to go through all four, but I want to identify them today anyways. A couple of these are reasons for people to either not step into getting a one, or if they have done it once, they don't do it again. And I want to encourage you if that is what you're saying. The first phase that a lot of people walk through in either deciding to have a one or when they step into the one, let's just call it out, it's fear. We're, we're afraid. And you struggle with doubts because for a lot of us, we're like, do I have the right information? Am I smart enough? Uh, do, am I ready for this? Am I going to be good enough for this person? I mean, all kinds of uh, doubts that, that come in our head. Some of those we give to ourselves and some of those the enemy gives us. And, and that's why I love that song, Fear, It Is a Liar. It, it is a liar. And we have to be careful about allowing those things to be whispered in our ears. But, but it's natural, though, to be scared. It's, it's scary to just even step in a relationship and just get to know somebody, introduce yourself, invite them to coffee, invite them over to your house, do a project with them, do life together. That, that can be hard enough. But then just the fear of, am I going to do good enough? Am I ready for this? All those other questions that come with it. And I want to remind you, you are ready for it. You know how to just have a conversation with somebody. I'm not asking you to explain the book of Leviticus to them, Okay. I'm not asking you to parse Greek verbs. You know what I mean? I, I mean, it's not what we're asking. I'm just asking you to invite them over for dinner. Go to coffee with them. Go to lunch. Just sit down and talk with them. Build a relationship. Make a friend. That's all I'm asking. And when you do that, and you take the fear out of it, and you remove all the pressure, the next phase is joy. You know what? It could be fun getting to know somebody else, doing life with them, getting out of the bubble, learning their story and their life and what's going on. There's an enormous amount of joy that can come from that. And then there can be an enormous amount of joy when you see those opportunities come up for you to share your faith. And they will come up naturally rather than you trying to force them. 
Again, just asking, what do you think about this, and, and, and what should I do in this, might give you the opportunity to go, well, you know what, my faith tells me that this is how we would step into that, and here's what we might do, if that's okay, if I can share that with you, but from, from my faith and what I believe and have learned through Jesus Christ, here's why my wife and I do that. I realize you may not, but just, just FYI, but you know, there's an enormous amount of joy being able to drip those moments into their life, but doing it in a way that isn't selling. You're saying, well, here's why I do what I do. Here's how I'm wired. The third one I want to camp out at for a minute, though, and it's the one um, that stops a lot of people in their time with a one or keeps them from going back to having another one when this occurs. It is also the one shared with who am I discipling because we run across this phase in both. And that phase is this. It's grief. There are seasons if we choose to do life with somebody, to get to know them better, to become their friend and to love them. There are times we may wake up one day after years of them, maybe them being our one and just grieve the fact that, you know what, they may never cross the line of faith. I've known people for years and I grieve that. And, and, and the problem is, see, the more you get to know them, the more of a relationship you build with them, and the more you love them, the more that grief hurts. If you've ever had, ever had a kid walk through it, one of your kids, you know what I'm talking about. And grief is a part of the process when you have a one. We can't ignore it, and we can't pretend it's not there. It gets even harder when you have a one, you invest in them, Maybe they've never crossed the line of faith, and then they die. Now it really hurts, doesn't it? And the, the third type of grief we, we deal with in that is an even harder one, and this is why I say we share it with discipleship as well, too, because there's the grief that just comes from giving them advice and, and trying to show them the way and point them the right direction in life and lead them to Jesus or at least leading them to the way of Christ. All those things, are like, they're, they're walking down a path and you're like, I really don't think you should walk down that path. They're, they're making some decisions like, man, I really think that's a boneheaded decision and here's why. You know, I, all those things. And, and you give them the advice, you pour it to them, you love them, and they do it anyways. And now you're grieving it. You're like, come on, Why? <laughs> We talked about this. I've shown you the right way. And the Bible says, as a dog returns to vomit, so does man. It's an ugly picture. It's probably meant to be. And when that happens, we grieve it. You know you do. You're like, why? And you're like, you're discipling somebody, and, and, and they're making progress, and then suddenly they just do something really stupid, and you're like, ugh. And it's at times like this that endurance and patience and intentionality is necessary to continue investing in your one. And for many who do that and are intentional about it and focus on it, it doesn't happen every single time, but it often does. They get the fourth phase, which is celebration. Either A, they start taking some steps in the right direction 
and you know they're beginning to move towards faith. Or B, they absolutely, at some point, the doors are open, you have the conversation, you invite them to church, whatever it looks like, and they make a decision for Jesus Christ. They cross the line of faith. And guess what? When that happens, you get to baptize them, not me. You get to baptize your one when that happens. We so yearn to celebrate more and more people coming to know Jesus. But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to relook at things a little bit. The days of let's do church well and open the doors and put some really cool posts on Facebook and the church will grow are over. In fact, they've been over for 20 years. I don't know if you all knew that or not. It's not how church grows. And now it's even worse. One in three people who were attending church two, three years ago don't attend any longer. Data's in. Why am I talking about who's your one? Because I believe that if we're going to truly grow as a church and be a light in our community, if we're truly going to make disciples, it will start with you asking who's your one. Because people aren't going to magically appear in our doors, y'all. It will start by us intentionally developing relationships with people who are far from Christ and cultivating those relationships and doing life alongside of them. People don't just show up and wake up on Sunday morning and say they go to church anymore. We're in a post-Christian world at this point. They come to church on the arm of a friend. If we're to grow, we're going to have to make some friends. And we're going to have to do life together. And when the moment's right, and you'll know, the Holy Spirit will tell you. You'll answer the questions. You'll open the doors. You'll invite them in. I know no other way, though, for this church to grow. Except for us to go identify who are our ones. In fact, I will tell you, for the church in America, I believe we are at a reckoning moment. It is time for us to get back to what was the way they did it in the first century. They did life with each other. They walked alongside each other. And they had ones. And so I ask you those three questions again. One, who do you need to invite? That one's separate from who's your one. This is just that neighbor, coworker, friend. I mean, there's just people around you that, hey, Easter's coming up. Where are you going to church for Easter? Hey, we've got an if gathering coming up. Would you like to come be a part of that? Or there's men's group, meets every other Saturday. Would you like to come be a part of that? There's many ways to invite. You need to ask yourself, who am I discipling? Again, different than who's your one. But who is it that where iron sharpens iron? You're praying together, accountability, doing life together, diving into the word. Who are you discipling? And the third one is, who's your one? Who is that person? you need to invest in. This is going to be an enormously important conversation for us in the next few weeks, and so much so that at the staff level, we are already asking who's your one, and we're holding each other accountable to that. And we're saying, you know, in the last month, what have you done with your, your one? And, and you know what? We're going to be honest with each other, you know. For some, it's like, I haven't been able to do much with our one. Okay, that's an honest answer. We're going to encourage each other. It's not about shame. Or, or sometimes the answer might be like, like for me, where I say, 
you know what, um, I told my one, hey, and that I was a preacher, and he quickly looked at me and said, we're not really into that stuff. <sighs> but he's still my one. Our small group leaders, we're going to ask them more and more to start their small group discussions with that. Who's your one? And what have you done to be intentional with your one? Why? Because it's time for us to grow. And I don't know any other way except for us to get intentional about building relationships in our community. We've got to get out of our bubble. We've got to get out of these walls. We've got to get into the community. We've got to get to meet people. And I've asked this question every week in different ways. And I'll ask it again. What could God do with a church that is fully invested in identifying and praying over and doing life with their one? And I believe that that is a church through relationships and love that can transform a community. And so I'll just ask you this question. Who is your one? Pray about it this week, and I end with this. One warning. If you pray about it, I promise you God will answer. And when he does... You remember that last part of the Great Commission? And teach them to what? Obey. When he reveals that one to you, now you will be faced with a step of obedience. Will you surrender to King Jesus?